240 ml. That's an eight ounce glass of water for those of you who are not on the metric system. That's ever. That's, that's pretty much all of our <laughs> listeners. No, I'm my my family's originally from Europe, so I've stuck stuck with it. I just rolled my eyes so hard, I think I actually strained my neck. <laughs> Welcome back to the Curbsiders, the internal medicine podcast that uses expert interviews, but not today. To bring you clinical pearls <laughs> and practice changing knowledge. I'm Dr. Matthew Watto here with my co hosts, Dr. Stuart Brigham. Hi. And Dr. Paul Williams. Hello. And uh, that's right, Stuart. We, we do not have an expert on this show because this no. is, this show is a roundtable show, but we will be bringing on a some table. high value practice changing knowledge as always. That's right, as I'm scrolling through Amazon.com. <laughs> okay, guys. Uh, so tonight, uh, the main the main event on this episode is going to be syncope. There were new guidelines released just last week by the ACC and AHA, which I thought were interesting. We'll also be talking about uh, some recent studies on syncope and the 2009 European uh, Society of Cardiology guidelines, which are just an absolute classic in my mind. Right, Stuart? Absolutely. <laughs> but uh, before that, let's get into our picks of the week. Paul, you're first. Oh, heavens. Well, this is exciting. I know. Um, as always, I will avoid anything medically related. Um, and I, as I slowly fall behind on my 365 movies in 365 days, uh, one I saw over the weekend. So I saw Get Out, but everyone's seen Get Out. So go and see that because it is fantastic. I've never seen it. Um, but I'm going to recommend the 2013 uh, Dennis Villeneuve film Prisoners. He's the guy who directed Arrival. Um, and this is... Uh, a completely different film uh, with Hugh Jackman and Jake Gyllenhaal about a father whose daughter goes missing and sort of the horrible things that he goes through to actually try to find her. And it's, it's, I, I don't want to get too deep into it. It's a horrible, dark, depressing movie that is done extraordinarily well. Um, so if you like that kind of thing, which I tend to, um, I would recommend the movie prisoners. I just, I've said this before, Paul, but I, I just can't, I can't watch the, uh, I can't watch this depressing stuff. It's, it's gotta be comedy or, action or just a really bad movie because i can always laugh at that Stuart, uh what's what's your pick of the week uh here let, let me get away from get out here um my pick of the week is actually medical this time okay was it medical last time? i don't remember when was our last time i think you lemony snickets or something that's I right don't know. that's i drifted in and out yeah me too <laughs> so th this one is actually uh, uh z dog mds against medical advice so the first episode was published on Facebook Live uh, just this month. Well, in March, March of this year, March 5th of this year. Um, it's it's interesting, at least from a medical perspective, seeing where he's coming from. Um, and if you haven't listened to it, I recommend that if you are involved in medicine in any way, shape or form, you take a listen to it. Okay, so we'll link to that in the show notes. I haven't heard that yet. How, how long? What's the time commitment there? Uh, <laughs> Let's see, about 30 minutes, give or take, per episode, and there's an episode posted each week. So I, I think they're on episode four or so. Okay. I can I can do that. I'll, I'll check them out. Yeah. Recommended. My pick of the week, uh, as always, is is a book since uh, I, I can't handle television anymore because of binge watching, so I just try to avoid it. Uh, my book, uh, the book this week is called Switch. It's how how to change things when change is hard. It's a book by Chip and Dan Heath. 
they're the same authors who wrote the book Made to Stick. If you heard Dr. Centaur recommend that book, uh, which is kind of a learning book, uh, he recommended that on our show. But this book is really about how to change, whether it's how to change things in your own life or how to change things in your workplace or your institution. Um, some of the main points that I took from this, you kind of look for these things that they call bright spots, basically like, okay, things are going bad, but maybe there's one there's one spot where things are going well. You look to see why is it going well here, and you try to kind of spread that throughout the organization. Um, just a lot of really good tips on people that uh, and, and case studies where people just overcame things where it seemed hopeless and they made big changes. And uh, I've been, I was recommending Stuart read that book uh, with some of his struggles as medical director yeah. in our clinic. Yeah. Well, not just our clinic, but yes. At Cash Lack. Absolutely. Where we lack the cash, <laughs> but not the ability to memorialize you. Yes. Cash Lack Memorial. Okay. Well, uh, so those are the picks of the week. Uh, take them for what you will. I, I won't. I also, I did want to just, uh, something we haven't done enough of on the show. We do get a lot of emails from listeners and, uh, I wanted to just start highlighting some of those listeners who are doing cool things or, or and just thanking people for reaching out to us. So one of, one of our listeners, uh, John Whitney, who reached out to us, he's a hospitalist and PA in, in the Massachusetts, uh, in Massachusetts in the, in the Boston area. He actually has his own podcast, so if you're a music nerd, which I think Paul is, it's called Brainwashed Radio, and uh, it's it's I've listened to some of the episodes. It's pretty good. Definitely music you're not going to hear uh, on the Top 40 station, so uh, check that out. That's Brainwashed Radio listener John Whitney, and then another listener, Courtney Cook, uh, in response to our in-flight emergencies episode, um, she works for a non profit she's actually a physician but she works for a nonprofit and sent us a demo of her app which is called air rx a-i-r-r-x it's available on the itunes app store uh for a small fee it is for a nonprofit, and basically it just in a very easily usable format it it lists um the top 23 diagnosis diagnoses uh, that you might encounter in an in-flight emergency and the suggested evaluation and treatment. It has kind of the medical kit and by country what you might find in the medical kit and some of the medical legal stuff that we talked about. Like Paul mentioning that you shouldn't pronounce patients dead on uh, flights. That's actually a thing. It's in the app as well. So uh, thank you. Of course it's a thing. Thank you to Courtney <laughs> Cook uh, for sending us that. Um, so you can check out Air RX. And it looks like... Uh... It was initially published actually well before our episode, so oh yeah, in August two thousand sixteen. I I I wasn't saying. <laughs> if, if <that's laughs> it sounded like you were trying to take credit for that. Matt. <laughs> no, no, I said she she sent an email in response to our episode and said, "Hey, uh, I, I came up I with this, this app, app because you guys had this amazing <laughs> episode." Yes, uh, I have a god complex, so every <laughs> everything everything in the world revolves around uh, around me and this show. Great. So, long story short, Courtney, you're welcome. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you can deposit that in his bank account. No, that is an unpaid endorsement. So, listeners, if you, uh, yeah, send us a nice email. Maybe we'll, uh, maybe we'll mention your stuff. Okay. Maybe we'll take credit for your stuff. Yes, <laughs> we'll take credit for it. I will take credit for it. Yeah, he gets paid and uh, pats <laughs> on the back. Okay. All right. Next segment. What's what's on our minds, uh, Stuart? W- what's on your mind tonight? Do you really, do you really want to know that? Um, 
I, I'm always a little scared when I ask this question, but yes, why don't you tell us uh, th- what's on your mind for this episode? Yeah, so, well, for this episode, uh, well, just in general, the one thing that's been kind of twiddling in the back of my mind here is the, the whole thing about PCSK9 inhibitors. And when you, when you try to find where these naturally occur, it's interesting. So one of which is the xanthohumol that's found in hops and beer. And so you think... Okay, if it's in hops and beer, how would you expect these individuals' lipid panel to look? Well, you expect potentially low LDL, potentially high HDL. Well, m- maybe not the high HDL, but in response to the the um, uh, to the the way that the PCSK9 inhibitors work, you could potentially have uh, uh, higher HDL levels. And this is what we tend to see with our alcoholic patients, those who are drinking. At least the patients that I see anecdotally, 16 to 24 standard drinks of alcohol, I've seen HDLs in the 90s to 110 range. That's always been in the back of my mind. Why am I seeing this? And there's an article. It's found in the prestigious, uh, let's see, Archives of Biochemistry and Biophysics. I, don't ask how I found this article. I think it's it's an amazing article. It's uh, It was published in 2016. And it looks at the effect of xanthohumol in a, a mouse study. And it found that the LDLC levels were re- reduced uh, essentially how you, you would expect them to be reduced with uh, like a PCSK9 inhibitor, like a volocumab, um, anywhere from the 70 to 80 percentile range, which I think is amazing. So I, I guess uh, the next question that I have to answer is malted or unmalted beer, which one has a higher concentration of xanthohumol? Yeah. I uh, I had no idea what xanthohumol was until a couple couple minutes ago. So I, <laughs> well, there I don't was, know the answer to that. It, so, Wait, so Stuart, it's found in the hops. It's found in the ho- the hops and the beer itself. So interestingly, there's an Egyptian jeers. Uh, uh, I, 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 the, the, some type of manuscript that looks at the the treatment for diabetes, and it's it's the froth of beer is one of them. And then there's another, it, it goes on to it. But if you look at, well, what's the most common cause of death and diabetes? It's cardiovascular. So if someone ha- is essentially taking this high concentration of PCSK9 inhibitors, you could potentially reduce their cardiac mortality. So maybe the Egyptians were onto something. Right. And maybe she wants to be doing like a, I don't know, some sort of analysis of bearded hipsters drinking um, you know, quadruple <laughs> IPAs and just compare them to their less hipster cohorts drinking, say, a Pabst Blue Ribbon and sort of compare what their HDL and LDLs look like. I feel like it's a perfect study. So yeah, I, I think it's I'll amazing. I'll leave that in your hands. Uh, I don't know, Paul. That's, uh... I, think, I think your neighborhood lends itself to that study, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but then I'd have to interact with them. <laughs> okay. Um, well, so that's, uh, that's what's on my mind. Actually, what's on Stuart's yes, mind, my mind. For, for this episode. <laughs> uh it could be anyone's mind on future episodes, but tonight it was Stuart's mind. Next, uh, I just want to move on to the main topic because there's a lot to talk about here. And uh, this is a very common diagnosis that we see um, on the inpatient side or commonly in clinic. I see this uh, patients two or three days later, they tell me they passed out. So syncope, something that something that we see so commonly, and I think the residents, at least when they when they call to tell me that that we're admitting a patient for syncope to the service, uh, I just get the sense that they don't like dealing with this. And I guess the hopes of this episode are to make things a little bit clearer and maybe help this be a little bit less painful than it is right now. Uh, Paul, I imagine at your uh, at your institution, residents have the same feelings on this. Yeah, it's almost always presented with sort of a heavy sigh in front of it, either syncope or, or, or even God help us near syncope. Um, it's the chief complaints always yeah. is, is sort of how you lead into it. So, yeah, I think our residents face it with equal dread. 
Well, fortunately, the new guidelines have some stuff in there that I had never heard of, and I'm actually excited to try out uh, on some patients in the near future. So we will get oh, into geez. that, but I would, I would like That's to. Yes, sounds, sounds really bad. Well, it's 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 fairly benign. You want to uh, do the acute water ingestion? Yeah, acute water ingestion, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, so I, I think uh, to kind of frame this and what, what had me thinking about syncope recently, saw a patient uh, at Cashlack Memorial, a 72-year-old lady who was admitted for syncope, um, was on the golf course with her friends and had passed out uh, and, and had been brought in by the family. And the residents were kind of like talking to me, oh, yeah, Dr. Watto, uh, this this patient came in, passed out on the golf course, you know, was dehydrated. Same thing happened about a month ago. And um, it was a very busy, busy day of call when this was happening. This was a little while back. And basically, um, when I went to see the patient, um, the daughter was very upset because the patient had already been, this was the second ER the patient had gone to. The other ER discharged the patient on uh Augmentin and levofloxacin for sinusitis. That's a typical uh, for this, course for, uh, for this syncope. For syncope, yeah. Right, right. And you passed uh, out, here's your moxicillin. The Go patient home. told me that she had actually, um, she had passed out a couple months ago when she was on the golf course bending over to pick up a golf ball, but in the past 48 hours, she had passed out twice when she was seated. And mm. that was an oh. immediately a, a red flag. And we kind of took it from there. The EKG was also abnormal. There was uh, nonspecific interventricular conduction delay. And we, of course, admitted, decided to admit the patient rather than send the patient home for, you know, simple orthostatic hypotension. Well, hold, hold on. Before we go anywhere, let's get our, our terms correct here, okay? Sure. So oftentimes I'm called by the ER saying syncope. Yes. Can we define syncope? Yeah. Please, so syncope... Syncope, there's a couple things here that you have to make sure. It has to be rapid onset, short duration, there has to be a spontaneous recovery, and there should be a loss of postural tone. Oh. And the mechanism the mechanism has to be global cerebral hypoperfusion. So mm. basically, if someone has a if someone has epilepsy and they have a seizure, that's not syncope because there's not global cerebral hypoperfusion. Okay. So that's about seventy percent of those patients are gone. Okay, got it. <laughs> Okay, so that was, uh, yes, so those four criteria have to be met. Uh, we will link to those in the show note if you've already forgotten them, or you can just uh, <laughs> read the guidelines yourself. Um, and then I think what it's, it's very, if you actually look at these, uh, the 2009 guidelines from the European Society of Cardiology, they have a great table in there or figure, um, and I don't know what figure number it is. Sorry, I should have uh, put that down. But it basically says the pathophysiological basis of classification for syncope. And they basically split it into three types. You have your reflex syncope, you have cardiac syncope, and you have orthostatic hypotension. So three broad categories to think of it as. Figure two. Figure two. Thank yes. you, Stuart. You're welcome. Yeah. That's what I'm good for. Well, let's first let's talk <laughs> about... So reflex syncope, um, basically... It's it's your vasovagal or your situational syncope where the patient situational being deglutition like swallowing and they syncopize urinating defecating um, coughing the, those kind of those kind of causes of syncope and uh, so those are your reflex syncopes and that can either trigger a vasodepressor response where the person becomes vasodilated and, and their blood pressure drops or it can be cardio inhibitory where they have 
a drop in their heart rate and cardiac output. So either, either one of those mechanisms can, can cause someone to have reflex syncope. And then the other types, cardiac is pretty self-explanatory. They might be having uh, an arrhythmia or they might have some sort of structural abnormality. And in structural abnormality, they, they're, they're kind of loose with that term mm-hmm. because they include in their acute coronary syndrome. So I guess acute thrombosis of a coronary artery. Yeah, well, I, is, I guess you could also put potentially PE in that too. They do, they do put yeah. PE in that as well. Yeah, and then valve stuff uh, and, and like cardiac myxomas, things like that. Orthostatic hypotension is the third category. And you should think of that as, is it induced by a drug? Is it either primary autonomic failure uh, from something like um, uh, Parkinsonism, or is it a secondary autonomic failure from something like diabetes? And uh, that can cause inappropriately low peripheral resistance and for patients passing out from that. And then the other types of orthostatic hypotension, which we very commonly see, which my residents for our patient that we started out with were thinking was volume depletion or venous pooling. Mm. She's on the golf course on a hot day, standing up. Typically happens when I'm sitting down too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Almost always. Right, right. Well, so you, so we mentioned that and we're saying it. Now, I, I don't think the residents had gotten that part of the history. So basically they need to be taught how to do a history. Well, they, maybe they need less admissions on the admission day. If I, I'll be, I'll be, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll be, uh, you know, in their favor on this one. Mm. Yes, but that that is history. that is true. The history was very important for this patient, and the the fact that there had been multiple episodes in the past uh, twenty four forty eight hours, and tw- two of them had been while while seated. So, what exactly did you guys do for the physical examination to help to elucidate the etiology? Unfortunately, the patient, well, fortunately or unfortunately, the patient had um, not received any fluids, so we were able to get orthostatic vital signs. And how did you do that? Right, right. Well, uh, did you just put an order into the computer and it happened, right? Magically. It happened. Okay. Sometimes it doesn't. Yes. Uh, I, I know what you're getting at here. So we were, we, please tell me. In, in reviewing the guide, in reviewing the guidelines here, um, I was thinking, it was interesting because they talk about syncope as being the patient starts out supine and then actively stands up and then you wait three minutes. And if their blood pressure drops, a systolic of 20 or greater or diastolic of 10 or greater, that's orthostatic hypotension. Or an even better indication is the fact that they stand up and pass out. Yeah. that uh, You don't even need to check any blood, any blood pressure at that point. Exactly. They've passed out. They've syncopized. You're done. Right. Exactly. Thank you. Somehow... And I'm not sure where this comes from, but in, in both the European and the, the and the most recent ACC guidelines, they mention nothing about measuring a seated blood pressure, and they really don't emphasize the heart rate at all. So, Paul, you have any thoughts on this, and 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 how how are you seeing this done in practice? Because I'm always seeing people get all three done, where really they should just be laying and then standing up and waiting three minutes. I mean, so thoughts, I think probably the heart rate to answer the first part is probably going to be more helpful uh, indicator of volume depletion sort of early on is is maybe sort of how broadly I would think about that. I, it, since you asked about in practice, um, I will tell you, in practice, I do see supine sitting and standing, though I don't think anyone actually wastes the requisite amount of time. I think it, that happens in fairly rapid succession in reality, uh, as opposed to sort of giving the patient time to, to collaborate and actually doing it properly. Right. I agree. And, and the reason why you're supposed to wait, uh, is, be- is because of this delayed orthostatic hypotension, which wasn't really something that I was classically taught about, but 
it's all over these uh if you read about syncope it's 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 all over the place in these papers and basically there's all types of different delayed orthostatic hypotension but there's one study that's kind of quoted uh routinely where if they waited 5 minutes they picked up an extra 50% of patients who had orthostatic hypotension and if they waited 10 minutes um they the, the sensitivity was increased even more they were saying that those are probably milder cases where you're you're getting that, but I think it probably is important to wait that three minutes because I'll commonly get patients in the office telling me, yeah, I feel okay. I stand up, you know, sometimes I feel lightheaded, but a lot of the times I'll have been walking for a little bit and then I start to feel lightheaded a few minutes later. And I'm wondering if that's, that's orthostatic hypotension that's kicking in. Um, I guess technically could be exercise induced, but usually it's like, yeah, I just was just walking across my kitchen and I started to feel lightheaded. I'd been up on my feet for a little while. So so walk us through how you would check orthostats then correctly. Correctly, right. Now, this varies from source to source, but hmm. you could, if you want to go, so they should be supine. You check a blood pressure and they should have been resting and quiet for a little while. Some sources say up to five minutes supine. And then they should actively stand up and you should wait three minutes, and they should remain quiet, and you check another another blood pressure. So the the ACC, the AHA guidelines, this is actually taken directly from their guidelines, it says, and I quote, the physical examination should include determination of orthostatic blood pressure and heart rate changes in lying and sitting positions on immediate standing and after three minutes of upright posture. That's for the delayed orthostatic hypotension. And I wonder... Are we doing that or are, are we wait like the, the way that we typically check them, the way that my technicians typically check it is lying and then uh, check a uh, blood pressure, heart rate sitting after five minutes, check a heart rate and blood pressure and then standing after around five minutes, check a heart rate and blood pressure. That's what they've been doing. The question is, do we need to be, do we need to be checking an immediate blood pressure after standing and then after three minutes? Right. I would rather that than even mess with the sitting blood pressure. I don't, I don't really do anything with the seated pressure. Right. Um, I, I think the, the reason to have someone sit for a second is so they don't fall down as soon as they stand up, I guess. But I, I don't, I don't see the reason for it. Paul, what are we going to officially recommend to the listeners here? For my recommendation would be if you want to check three blood pressures, check, check supine immediately standing. And then after a couple minutes of standing three minutes or more, I, I think that makes perfect sense and not to get on the soapbox too much. I would, I think this goes back to our hypertension episode where technique is everything. I, mm-hmm. I think in practice, it's usually scut the medical student to go check orthostatics and then they come back five minutes later and say the patient's good. Um, so I, I think sort of being explicit on how to do that and sort of teaching it properly is going to be sort of fundamental in assessing for it. Well, I think your, your, your sensitivity is going to be higher if you go from lying to standing. Yes. So if you catch them in, in from lying to standing, then you, you know, at least you're going to catch more. You're going to overtreat potentially versus going from sitting to standing. And if you look at what what's the the biggest risk for syncope in an elderly patient, it's when they get up from from you know, from bed. So it, it at least for orthostatic hypotension, um, not looking at other causes of syncope, obviously. But when you look at orthostatic hypotension, the risk is when they get up from bed. So they're lying to standing. We'll kind of jump back to this when we get into the treatment a little bit later. The, the next thing I wanted to go to, when you're, just to recap, so you're in the ER, history should be where you spend the majority of your time. Try to get orthostatics with the patient supine and then have them stand and check one or two blood pressures with them standing. 
and and document that. And you really, the the heart rate, depending on what you read, the heart rate can jump anywhere from ten to twenty five beats per minute just in a normal patient who stands up, at least initially. Um, in things like POTS syndrome, it's going to jump thirty or more beats uh, upon standing. So you know, the heart rate, take it for what you will. It's kind of a surrogate marker. I do look at it, but I I don't really. I'm not exactly sure how to interpret it. I just know that if it goes up by like 50, that's definitely <laughs> abnormal. <laughs> okay, so we're in the ER still or you're in the clinic and you're getting your orthostatics. The The next thing you should definitely get is an EKG. And there's some certain things on EKG, which which are high-risk features. Stuart was joking around in pre-recording uh, the <laughs> how the absurdity of, of kind of like, they tell you these are patients you should definitely admit. <laughs> and... Uh, it's it's you it's like things like sustained VTAC and yeah. severe aortic stenosis uh, as the suspected cause. Well, no, I, I, I thought it was it was pretty straightforward. I mean, so it says uh, after in, your initial syncope evaluation, check if there's a serious medical condition, yes or no, and that, that seems very subjective. But then when you look at what the medical conditions are, you say, well, this is a no brainer. Okay, persistent vital sign abnormalities. No, I'm going to send you home with that six fever, palpable blood, blood pressure, major traumatic injury due to syncope. Obviously, you're probably going to admit them. Take care of them. How about this one? Aortic dissection. Who's going to who's going to discharge that one from the ER? I don't think anyone is. And if you do, you got a problem. Or acute heart failure, sustained ventricular tachycardia. These are obvious, but everything else is outpatient or observation in the emergency department. It doesn't warrant an inpatient admission. I, I think the thing that it doesn't say here is if it's uncertain and depending. Anywhere from like one in five patients, the, the diagnosis is going to be kind of uncertain, even after you do a full evaluation, whether it's reflex or, or cardiac or orthostatic. It, there's, there's the conditions that will be obvious that you have to admit the patient for oh, most for most patients. These high-risk conditions are obvious when they're present, but they're often not present. I think most of the time we're getting the call, it's, it's where you have to do some hard work and, and some digging to, to figure this out. So you get your EKG. If the EKG is abnormal or if you suspect a cardiac cause, you're, you're going to be admitting that patient and you're probably going to be getting an echo. But actually, for patients, unless you suspect a cardiac cause or there's an abnormal EKG, you don't have to get an echo on all these patients. And that was actually bulleted in these new ACC AHA guidelines. They don't want you just getting a 24-year-old with, with a pretty obvious vasovagal syncope doesn't need a cardiac echo. And I think in practice, a lot of people are scared they're missing something and they're going to get echoes. But um, if the history is clear, you, you really don't have to do that. Well, it sounds like, I mean, the overall gestalt for at least the workup, and you correct me if I'm wrong since you did the deep dive into these, is that the studies, you, you order them if they're warranted, not not as a shotgun because the patient passed out. Which, so, right. which, is, how, which is how I was taught to practice. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, when it says routine laboratory evaluation, routine cardiac imaging, it's no benefit. Yeah, I it's guess... Only, it's only if the history su suggests that there is a reason to be obtaining right. labs, ec uh, echocardiography, or any other evaluation. Or neuroimaging yeah. or EMG or anything. Yeah, right, yeah. exactly. I guess I guess that's probably a better a better way to tackle this, Paul. Um, so what do we commonly see done? So I'll tell you what I have, since I've been a third-year medical student and kind of hanging out in this world and, and watching patients with syncope admitted, almost everyone gets head imaging. Almost everyone gets an echo. Uh, yeah. Everyone gets telly. Well, and this is uh, where order sets are just evil. 
There's <laughs> evil. Order sets can be really bad, and this is one of those cases that they're just bad. Everyone gets carotid duplex yeah. ultrasound. So a lot of them get get uh, MR angiography. A lot of people neck. get EEG. Yeah. We just talked about who needs an echo. So basically, if you suspect a cardiac cause, if there's an abnormal EKG, if they haven't had an echo like yesterday, then you know you can consider it if if you're suspecting cardiac. Uh, EKG monitoring. If you're going to be admitting the patient for syncope and you're not you're not sure what happened, then then you can put them on it. Come on for for like telly, telly, telly. Yeah, yeah EKG monitoring. Yeah, yeah. So, telemetry, I mean, Te- telemetry, low yield. I think something like sixteen percent of patients yeah. you might get something if you're selecting well and if you keep them on it for up to five days. It was like se- at least seventy two hours, which is not what I see routinely done. <laughs> it's a diagnostic yield of eighteen percent. Right, fifteen percent with bradyarrhythmias. Right, so yeah. pretty low yield on telly, and I think everyone listening probably has that gestalt because you don't you you right. don't get much from telly when you have patients well, on it, it. And if you're admitting ten to fifteen patients on a call day, it's going to be hard to tease out that history just to say, to say, well, it's that I I suspect cardiac in this patient, not not this patient. So you know, part of that is just the workflow and workload is makes it difficult to really tease out the. Uh, a proper workup for these patients, and maybe that's why we have a lot of uh, of order sets that we're doing a lot of, unfortunately, inappropriate testing. Right. the The other thing um, we we had just mentioned the head imaging, um, so CT and MRI. Unless something else is going on that makes you think this patient has uh, a, like a bleed in their brain, or if the patient hit their head, you really don't need the CT. And unless they had focal neuro deficits, you're not. You don't need the MRI. It's it's really low yield. Yeah. Well, you're unlikely to have global hyperperfusion from cerebrovascular disease. Exactly. So carotid, uh, and this is this is really bullet pointed um, in there. The carotid, a carotid TIA. What does that look like? It looks like focal neuro deficits. There is mm-hmm. almost no, almost never ever a loss of consciousness. Not even an alteration of consciousness with a carotid TIA. And syncope, as we said, is a loss of consciousness. So carotid carotid ultrasounds, exceedingly low yield. Please don't get those unless someone had a TIA and focal neurodeficits that you're working up. And then the vertebrobasilar TIA, what might that look like if you actually see it? The patients, they're going to have focal neurodeficits. They might have a loss of consciousness, but usually the most prominent thing is going to be things like limb weakness or ataxia. They might have oculomotor, oculomotor palsies or oropharyngeal dysfunction. The loss of consciousness may or may not be there. Um, it's 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 probably a much more rare, it's definitely rare compared to the, the three main things we were talking about, the reflex, syncope, orthostatic, or the cardiac causes. I know people always like to think of that, but I think that should be way down your differential diagnosis. And Paul, what about uh, differentiating epilepsy and and syncope? Do you have any any pearls there for the listeners? Not, no pearls that we that we haven't heard before. I, it's you know, especially in these time pressure situations. You know, you mentioned the sort of the busy call day. I think the history is going to be the most useful thing, and, and that's reflected in the guidelines too, in terms of a suggestion for EEG monitoring. But just you know, getting something that sounds like seizure. So you know, if there's um, if there's Witness a tonic-clonic activity, if there's sort of tongue biting or loss of bound bladder continence, sort of the stuff that sort of more classically goes with seizure activity as opposed to this transient loss of consciousness where the patient recovers relatively quickly. Um, I think the history is going to help guide a long way in terms of whether or not you need to worry about uh, 
seizure disorder or epilepsy is a cause of loss of consciousness versus syncope. Well, you know, one of the problems, though, is that with global hyperperfusion, you'll you probably have some type of, of epileptiform-type movements. And so one of the things that's recommended in the ACC AHA guidelines is actually to consider tilt-table testing to help to differentiate um, uh, different motor movements versus uh, mm-hmm. epilepsy. So, and that, that's something I didn't even think about, really. Right. I, I do have some stuff to go through on tilt testing a little later. With with the movements, specifically with seizure, seizure movements should be synchronous, and they're going to last more right. than a minute. And uh, syncope, the person doesn't start to move until after they fall, well, the, the and pro- then they have some asynchronous movements. The, the problem movements. is, oftentimes, it's it's not witnessed by medical personnel. Right. And so you have right. some untrained medical or some untrained medical, some untrained individual who witnessed the event and is trying to describe it to you, and they're like, oh, he, he had a seizure. <laughs> well, okay, yeah. that was like five hours ago, so you don't even know if they had a postictal period. Right. The The other thing to look, just be careful of, um, urinary incontinence can happen in either epilepsy or with syncope. Right. So not necessarily like, you know, doesn't necessarily mean they had had a seizure. And then I found this in there. I thought this was interesting. Uh, they, in syncope, they, they tend to bite the tip of their tongue <laughs> and in, yeah, uh, the side. in epilepsy, it's the sides yeah. of the tongue. Right. And that's something that I've been taught all throughout my, uh, I had medical never training. heard that really? before. Yeah. yeah no. It was a neurologist who told me that look at the side of the tongue to see if it's, cause that's more consistent with, with epilepsy versus the tip or pseudo seizure is also the tip. Yeah. Very interesting. And, uh, some of the testing we had talked about, we already talked about head imaging. Most patients don't need that EEG. Unless the history suggests seizure, don't don't waste your time. Right. Um, there are going to be a handful of patients where you're just like you, the history is all over the place, or it's incomplete for whatever reason, and maybe maybe you're going to be getting this. But for the vast majority of these patients, it's it's not going to be helpful. Yeah, and uh, again, we we really have to hoofbeat the the whole MRI or CT of the head only if they have um, focal neurological findings, right, or, or head injury to suggest. Um, as an etiology for syncope. That's yeah. down here too. So that's that's kind of the evaluation. There There is some stuff about cardiac monitoring. I don't know that I, I when you're discharging the patient from the hospital, like outpatient monitoring, you know, I, I guess the one thing I would put out there, Holter monitors can just be continuous monitoring. Um, the patient can press a button if they have symptoms and you just kind of see if they correlate. Event monitors... It's really not helpful for patients with true syncope because they they're going to pass out and they won't be able to press the button when the event occurs. So it's it's really it's more for patients with palpa- it's more for patients with palpitations. If the patient is is having syncope and you want a longer monitor, you're going to do an uh, external loop monitor, which basically like it records continuously, but it kind of deletes stuff that's older. So if a patient passes out. They, when they wake up, they press the button and it kind of keeps the stuff for five to 15 minutes before they press the button. So that way you'll, you'll probably be catching, um, whatever was going on at the time. And then if, you know, if it's very, very infrequent syncope, like if it happens less than once a month, then you could think about the implantable loop recorder, which is a, um, it can be in there for three years. They even now have like these patch based devices where, uh, they wear them for up to up to 14 days, and it continuously monitors. It sounds like it's almost like a Holter monitor, but it, it's a patch, so you don't have all the wires and everything. I didn't I didn't heard of that before. That's fantastic. I didn't know it existed until I went through the guidelines. Yeah. Um. And then, Paul, do you have the, do you have access to this at your institution? There's a continuous telemetry 
uh, that basically it's like there, it's almost like the telemetry in the hospital, but someone is just monitoring the patient, uh, like remotely and they can, uh, notify people if anything happens. I'm not sure. I have a vague sense that our cardiologists might have access to something like that, but it's certainly nothing that I, I've had the occasion to order. Right. Yeah. I have, I have not used that, that either. So I think, um, so that's kind of the monitors there. So you definitely want to think about frequency of syncope. Is it daily, weekly, monthly, um, or, or even less often? And then that's kind of how you're going to choose which monitor to go with. So we can kind of move on to, to the treatment. Uh, Stuart, anything here that you were surprised at in the ACC guidelines? Uh, yes. I was exceptionally surprised to find that in vasovagal syncope, uh, the recommendation is to educate your patient. When is that not? When is that not part of <laughs> well, it? Well, I think I was more surprised that they even had to say that. How about anything helpful for the audience? <laughs> <laughs> Education is not helpful. Well, that's a little vague. What might you tell the patient they can do uh, if they feel their vasovagal syncope arising? Well, thank you for asking me that. You could do some physical counterpressure maneuvers. Yeah. So, uh, physical counterpressure maneuvers. I was never taught this. No. I had never, until I went deep into these guidelines here, I had not heard of this. Uh, Paul, have you seen people doing this? Is this something that you were aware of? You you have a little bit more eclectic knowledge than I do. Yeah, I just sort of recommend it prophylactically. Um, just, just all the time. In hopes that my patients will never pass out. I just have to cross <laughs> their arms a lot. Wake up in the morning, do some stretches, put on some uh, Ted hose. No, this is, this is not something I've been recommending with any, I, this is not something I've ever recommended. So this was also new for me. Yeah. So what we're talking about, they're, they're called physical counterpressure maneuvers. And uh, basically, they're just isometric exercises the patients can do. They really have to have a prodrome of syncope here. Otherwise, they're, <laughs> it doesn't work for people who have cardiogenic syncope from an arrhythmia. Yeah. It only works for vaso, <laughs> vasovagal or orthostatic hypotension or, or reflex syncope of any kind. Um, but also using uh, uh, compressive stockings was, I mean, it, it yeah. makes sense. Yeah. So, um, and it's something I hadn't ever really thought about using potentially because most of my patients are, uh, located in a area of the United States where to wear excessive clothing would potentially make their orthostatic hypotension worse. Right. Yeah. And, and the thing about this, so my, my first patient as a medical student was a guy with shy Drager syndrome, um, and basically autonomic primary, or I don't, I guess it would be primary or secondary. I don't know. Some sort of autonomic failure. And uh, we we had prescribed him waist high compression stockings to get those things on, especially if you have any sort of leg hair, is just brutal. So it's really hard to get people to wear those. And they they say that the stockings should be at least thigh high. Um, but maybe I mean, if you're prescribing them in like the Pacific Northwest or or Chicago or Minnesota or something, you might have better luck than we yeah, do I, I, down had, in Texas. I've had such horrible compliance. Right. Same here. But that is, and I could say, even in the balmy environs of Philadelphia, it's there's a lot of resistance to there's a lot of resistance to them. Yeah. So I, I think <laughs> no for down intended. here, what I'm going to start telling patients because I do have all these patients that just like they're elderly. I pull back all their medications that I think could possibly cause causing this. Right. We do the education on like changing positions slowly. Um, I'm going to tell them to start doing like the hand grip exercises or tensing their arm muscles. Uh, they can cross their legs. Um, by similar token, uh, back to our blood pressure episode, make sure patients aren't tensing their arm muscles or crossing their legs or squatting when you're checking their blood pressure because <laughs> it does raise their blood pressure. And right. that's, that's what we're trying to do in this case. And I, I think you highlighted something very 
important though. And that's to look at the medications that they're on. So we're not atrogenically causing syncope. Right. And there are a lot of medications, anything that's anticholinergic, obviously any blood pressure medications, some of the most common things um, that I see, we have all these older gentlemen on alpha blockers. And even though they're supposed to be selective uh, for the bladder, I I just don't buy that that's the case. And um, they're not. Yeah. I mean, we we use them as BP (laughs) meds. Come on. Yeah. I mean the newer the the newer generation ones. Which uh, ones? Cardura, Tamsulosin, and well, Tamsulosin still causes some orthostatic. Yes, exactly. I agree with you. It does. Yeah. And uh, so, so what I would do if you are prescribing those medications, just be aware of that. And and I usually only give them to patients for I'll give them a one or two month supply, and I'll say you know call me if you want to refill because I'm not I'm not going to just give you the one year supply that a lot of our patients get, and then it just gets refilled forever. And they're ortho, and you know they're having falls or uh, orthostatic hypotension. So, yes, okay. So meds, we talked about meds. We talked about the counterpressure maneuvers, the stockings. Wait, one other thing about meds, though. So specifically for vasovagal syncope, and this is something that was I, I didn't. It, it, it somewhat makes sense looking at using beta blockers um, as potentially being effective at reducing the, like, I suppose, incidences of uh, of syncope in patients that were older than the age of forty two, which was somewhat surprising. Yeah, I think it's it's a, a class two B indication, so it's kind of like it's not a strong mm-hmm. indication, but right. uh, it's two yeah. A or not two B. It, it's uh, uh, God. Before we get to the medications, because there's a couple that I do want to talk about, but salt and fluid intake. I thought this was hilarious because that is a medication. This is something in very carefully selected patients, Paul. You might be able to do this, right? Well, sure. Two to three liters of water, and uh, so they have to drink two to three liters of water a day and about 10 grams of salt, which is two heaping tablespoons of salt. So just magically delicious, trying to maintain a good central volume um, for both vasovagal and orthostatic uh, hypotension or syncope is, is going to work. It's going to be great for heart failure patients. Right. Yeah. yeah. So obviously, you got to make sure your patient... Uh, is carefully selected. So if they have heart failure, you're not going to be giving them 10 grams of salt per day unless you want to kill them. Or maybe give them heart failure with all that salt. Yeah, yeah. But acute water ingestion, Stuart, what do you think about that? I think it's a small volume. It is. Yeah, 240 ml. 240 ml. That's an eight-ounce glass of water for those of you who are not on the metric system. That's it's, it's, That's pretty much all of our listeners. <laughs> no, I'm my my family's originally from Europe, so I've stuck stuck with it. Yeah. I just rolled my eyes so hard, I think I actually strained my neck. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're so pretentious, Paul. <laughs> uh, he just does like bad comedy. Yeah. So acute water ingestion. I had never heard of this either. I think it's awesome, though. I, I so basically, you just give the patient a glass of cold water. One glass of cold water, maybe two. They say with two, you might get a little more effect. <laughs> we'll we'll link to this in the show notes, but apparently that has a simp- it activates the sympathetic system and it has a vasopressor effect. And there's studies that they actually link to in this that uh, they raise the blood pressure anywhere from like ten to twenty millimeters mercury. So that is something where if a patient, you can kind of just coach them. Like if a patient's feeling pre-sinkable, they can just pound eight ounces of cold water and maybe it's going to help it resolve. But uh, on to more interesting things. Stuart, mm-hmm. what about mitadrine? What about it? What do you want to know about it? And it's I call it mitadrine. 
Yeah, I probably pronounced it wrong. That's pretty much par for the course for me. What do you think? Are you using? I have not used this. No, no. I I I can honestly say that I have failed myself in this. But I mean, so they, they do say you're really supposed to make sure the patients don't have. Obviously, they have if they have uncontrolled hypertension. This is an alpha agonist, so right. you can't you can't use it in them. Patients with CHF, you're really not supposed to use it. I just and then I, patients I, with urinary retention. Right. I mean, I just. I don't know if, if if I could be convinced to use it in a lot of my patients because what if when you look at the demographics of those patients who are more likely to have badness with their syncope, male sex is associated with it, and so it's generally older patients too. And so these patients have BPH. Do I want to give them Benadryl? I I haven't been using it. Paul, do you have any experience with this medication? It's no, I've I've had and this is empirically only. I've had patients on it. It's not something I've ever reached for myself, and I've never seen it have marked improvement in the patients that I've seen, but my, my sample size is so small, I really can't speak uh, definitively. Now, I, I think in selected patients, maybe younger patients, females, maybe some males too, but uh, you know, selected patients, certainly maybe, but I, I'd be very cautious about using it across the board. And, and this is for patients with either orthostatic hypotension or reflex hypot- uh, syncope. Those those are patients you might potentially reach for this in, right? But I, I, and again, I didn't look at the the actual citation. Well, I I, I didn't look through all the studies that they cited here. But a forty three percent reduction in syncope recurrence. I mean, it does sound significant. But again, I'd like to see what they compared it to. <laughs> Two glasses of water. Yeah, which had a thirty five percent. I'm a huge fan of acute water ingestion. Maybe that's uh, why uh, Midadrin is a two A and acute water ingestion is a one. Maybe it's a one. Uh, it's it's got good evidence. Well, uh, so those are the things that uh, I think the tools in your tool belt. If you're just to kind of recap, so for patients with um, non-cardiac cause of syncope, so with either reflex or orthostatic uh, syncope, you can think about uh, this using this acute water ingestion, the physical counterpressure maneuvers, and for for patients where it's safe, you can make sure you increase their their water intake to two fluid intake to two to three liters a day with the the ten grams or two heaping tablespoons of salt per day, and you might maintain their central volume. You might be able to prevent some of these things. And if you're in a cold climate, you can you can try these uh, stockings. They should be at least thigh high, but definitely a tough condition to treat. I think we're definitely overusing head imaging, EEG, carotid uh, ultrasounds, and probably echo, definitely echo. Pretty much everything. Yeah. Well, I think it goes back to it's unfortunately the patient can't really comment because they were passed out at the time. And you're, you're either with uh, a witness who's either, you know, panicked or un, not entirely reliable or just not present. And so it's I think you're sort of stuck shotgunning a lot of the time just because the history can be so challenging to get. So I, I don't think it's all just bad medicine necessarily. I think sometimes you're just sort of stuck not actually knowing what happened. Well, I don't know. Like head, head imaging. I, I just, I can't be compelled to get head imaging. Who's with someone who has a, a normal neurological examination when I'm examining them. Oh no, no, no. I'm not advocating for it. I'm just saying I can probably understand the place where it comes from. I think a lot of the times it's, you know, that, that ship has sailed by the time we get called for the patient. That's exactly right. <laughs> yeah. But if you're in the office and your patient comes in two days after uh, they've, they've passed out, and they tell you, oh, I passed out two days ago, and 
you know, you don't have to get the head imaging if the neurologic exam is normal. And if, if, if you have a good, a good historian or, or a witness that says, oh yeah, they didn't hit their head. They're not on uh, a blood thinner. Then, then you can probably avoid that imaging. So I hope this is helpful to people um, kind of laying some of these things out here. What, what about carotid massage? We didn't really talk about uh, that. Yes. Thank you. I did want to bring this up. This is, I was shocked when I was reading this because, yeah, no. uh, so carotid massage, the correct way to, the correct way to do it. First of all, send me several text messages. <laughs> I did. It's very scary. <laughs> I was very excited. Uh, you know, <laughs> you have five or six cups of coffee at 10 o'clock at night and start reading through the syncope guidelines and, uh, you know, magic happens. Just see where it takes you. Yeah. <laughs> Magical place. Yeah. Okay. First of all, so what is a positive carotid sinus massage? It is a drop in systolic blood pressure of greater than 50 millimeters of mercury. Yes. So that's right. So if you are doing carotid sinus <laughs> massage, you should be checking the blood pressure like every second uh, to make sure that you're catching this greater than 50 point drop in blood pressure. The other thing you should have the person on uh, definitely telemetry, um, but but you should have a continuous EKG in the room so you can see what's happening because when you do carotid sinus massage, you're not exactly sure if this is going to be a vasodepressor effect where the blood pressure is going to drop, like the greater than 50 millimeters mercury, or if their um, heart rate is going to be the thing that primary drops. And actually, you're looking for asystole of greater than three seconds. Say, say that again. Did you say check the blood pressure every second for three seconds? What no, no, you... I was joking. I was saying you should you should check the blood pressure. They say continuous blood pressure monitoring, but I like unless okay. you're doing this in the ICU with an A line, I don't know how you're doing that. I was saying you should you should just check the blood pressure frequently while you're doing this. So definitely before and right afterwards if you can. Right, right. Okay. Okay. Uh they I probably shouldn't use sarcasm when I'm giving medical advice. No, so, don't. No, no, uh, don't. <laughs> okay. I was about to do that. No, so you should have the person on continuous continuous EKG monitoring and you should be checking the blood pressure as frequent as you're able to with the automatic cuff in the room because that you're looking for a greater than 50 millimeter mercury drop in the blood pressure or greater than or equal to three seconds of asystole which or reproduction of symptoms, which is kind of scary. Matt, how quickly should this happen, by the way? So you massage sequentially on the left and right. I don't think it matters which side you start on, but for five seconds, you, you, you massage the right carotid artery at the bifurcation and then the left. Uh, and so I imagine it should, if you're only doing it for five seconds, you should see it pretty quickly. That sounds scary still to me. It does. It is scary because you're talking about a 50 point drop in blood pressure. Most patients, uh, hospitalized don't have 50 points to give. And then, uh, and then you're talking about asystole is one of your positive findings. Right. I, I think we're, we're almost talking ICU being in the ICU here. Yeah. Or I crash mean, cart at the very least. Yeah. They, they do say neurologic complications happen in less than 1%. You're, <laughs> you're supposed to listen for carotid breweries first. And if the person's had a stroke in the last three months, you definitely shouldn't. Uh, they say that's a contraindication to doing this. I think this procedure is probably more reserved for like CCU or if you're in the ER because everything's right there, you know, that would be the time to do it. Now, thinking back through this, like where are the places? Because like if you're on your floor, that's like, you know, if you're on your typical floor in your typical hospital or outpatient clinic or outpatient clinic, yeah, you shouldn't be doing this. I'm not doing this in outpatient clinic. There's no way. Cash lack would blow up. So I think uh, to recap, the curbsiders are recommending you either do this in the <laughs> ER or in ICU. If we can jump online, if any of you are experts, uh, we can maybe we can reach out to some of our cardiology colleagues and see if anybody knows, you know, 
thinks we're being babies about this and we should just do it, you know, <laughs> practice, each other. practices on your uncle, like after Thanksgiving dinner, sure. like, <laughs> yeah, oh, don't even down. worry about sequential, just <laughs> no. do simultaneous karate massage. In fact, just fine. put a blood pressure cuff around the neck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But that's, so that's carotid sinus massage. Really just interesting <laughs> stuff. Uh, and I'm not Stuart, doing it. I'm not doing it. Thank you for reminding me of that. I, I think I'll do it in the ER. I'm not really, I think it's, you know, I think it's low risk that it's going to happen. Maybe I just think with most of the patients that I see, they've got some atherosclerotic lesions and we're going to, we're going to have some problems. Well, less, less than 1% apparently. Yeah. Risk and that of, less than 1% is probably all patients older than 70. Okay. 0.29% is what they said. And really? you're probably right. You're probably yeah. right. They are older patients, I'm sure. I, I don't have the date in front of me, so you'll have to excuse me. Um, for completeness sake, you did mention tilt table testing. There is a whole world of tilt table testing. I can say that it's very hard to get convinced someone to do it unless you have a cardiologist on your side, at least in the hospitals that I've worked in. But there are a lot of cases where it could potentially be helpful like Stuart was saying, if you're not sure if this is syncope versus seizure, it can also be helpful for pseudosyncope, uh, you know, psychogenic pseudosyncope, and um, just to figure out, is this syncope caused by the vasodepressor effect or caused by the um, the cardio inhibitory, like the decreased cardiac output, bradycardia, that type of effect. So it, I, I have not used it in the past four years. I don't think I've I've ordered it once or twice, but I've never gotten anyone to actually get the the tilt testing. So, Paul, any any words on that before we give our final words here? No, as per usual, nothing helpful. Typically, I'll make the referral to EP to coordinate it and sort of let them sort out whether or not they think it's necessary. And I've not seen the trigger pulled on it terribly often. Yeah. the The parts of the guidelines that we're just blatantly ignoring right now, or the parts where you get electrophysiology involved um, in talking about defibrillators and things like that. I think it's usually fairly obvious when you get to that point. So we're going to just leave that to the cardiologist, but uh, hopefully you found some practical knowledge from this. Did we want to touch on the, um, the syncope and uh, pulmonary embolism article in the New England Journal? No, I think we should. And uh, I can either splice it back in or we can just take it from here, but let's, yeah, let's do it, Paul. The, the article is kind of interesting in that it's just the prevalence was higher than it had previously been seen in the literature that, to be fair, it had not been really well studied. So this is the prevalence of pulmonary embolism among patients hospitalized for syncope uh, in the New England Journal. And this was published, oh, gosh, uh, actually, October 20th, 2016, so relatively recently. And it's an Italian study where basically they looked at uh, a total of 560 patients who were admitted for a first-time diagnosis of syncope. And they they did... Um, quote unquote routine testing on all of them, including chest X-rays, EKGs, but also did D-dimers and, and took as good a history as they could. And so, for patients that were deemed to be low risk, so, so their D-dimer was was negative, and they were low risk by the the simplified Well score, they called them done. But for anyone who did not meet that criteria, they did either a CT angiography or ventilation perfusion scanning. And really, the whole punchline of this is just an absurd number of patients. I think it was 17% of the total cohort were actually found to have PE upon investigation. It's an interesting study. Granted, it's I don't think the patient population is entirely comparable to the one that I take care of, but and I think the mean age was 78. So there there are some shortcomings with it. But on the other hand, the fact that um, one of the statistics that I found sort of interesting slash horrifying that is I feel like in patients who had who really actually made the diagnosis of pulmonary embolism, I think somewhere in the neighborhood of 40 percent did not have sort of the the symptoms that would even go along with it to raise suspicion for PE. So I, I think, if anything, it just should be sort of heighten your awareness of that as a possible cause of, of syncope and should maybe just sort of raise it on the differential 
um, particularly in cases that are not otherwise easily explained by by other by their possibilities. The uh, differentiator was was it D-dimer in the study? It was. So it, it, essentially, syncope, check a D-dimer, and then that was used to differentiate, and then. They, yeah, they did a Wells, regardless of what was suspected, they did a Wells score and they did the, the D-dimer. And then if either one of those suggested high risk was positive, then they went for, uh, they went for imaging. CT or VQ. Even in the, even the, even with the negative, um, D-dimer, which is pretty good. If they had a sort of high risk by the, by the simplified Wells, they still actually went for imaging. I see. Okay. Um, so looking at the actual patients that were diagnosed by, by imaging, so, if I'm reading this correctly, so 41% had a had a had an embolus in a main pulmonary artery. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, a lot of it was proximate disease. So that's that's even more amazing. So the the patients that I end up diagnosing with PE are are almost subsegmental exclusively. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So probably because the rest are in the ICU or something right, and, and they've got a, working there. Yeah, PE in the main pulmonary. Yeah. So and the the patients that I've admitted with uh, like saddle. Um, embolisms are were obvious, right? They had obvious signs and symptoms to, to su- suggest PE. I, it'd be interesting to look at these thirty patients and see what what symptoms they specifically presented with. But well, I'm glad you mentioned that. They actually looked at a couple of things, and so among those things that increased the odds ratio for PE, um, our tachypnea was one of the big ones. If they had clinical evidence of DVT, that that raises significantly, and then less so the ones that you would expect. So tachycardia and I believe systolic blood pressure less than 110, I think was the number that they used, were also increased the odds ratio that this would be. Um, PE when they when they looked at the population that was diagnosed. And just to kind of go back to our our three categories, so the reflex or neurally mediated syncope, orthostatic hypotension, and cardiac, those were three categories. Of the people in the fourth category, which was undetermined in this study, undetermined cause of syncope after they did the whole history, fifty a little over fifty percent of those patients had a pulmonary embolism as a cause. So to me, that's like. Okay, if you've done a pretty good history, physical, and evaluation, and undetermined is the cause, then you, you have a pretty good reason to be checking for pulmonary embolism. Keep in mind, though, the average age of the patients in the study, seven, yeah. six years. So, Yeah, I think it's interesting. I mean, active malignancy was also a consideration and was sort of figured into the Wells score, but I, I don't know if they sort of looked after the fact. I'd be curious to see if they thought about sort of undiagnosed malignancy because, again, this is a, you know, a patient age this is a, a group that by and large is going to be sort of at risk for malignancy just by dint of living long enough. So I, I'd be curious to know if they sort of looked at that after the fact or not as a provoking factor. But that's a, that's a good study, Paul. Thank you for, for bringing that up. Uh, de- definitely the audience should be aware of that, that, that will be linked to in the show notes as with all the other uh, great recommendations that we've given on this episode. Uh, Stuart, any final, any final words here for the audience? Yeah, I, I actually, I just want to ask you two a question. What's the strangest case of syncope that you've ever admitted? The only, the one that, the one that I started this out with, uh, was, was not the strangest, but that's the one that's jumping to mind. And I'll give the punchline here. Basically this patient, the daughter the, on the daughter ended up pulling a, an EKG from the previous ER out of her purse with like significant ST depressions the patient, oh my went, gosh. <laughs> the, the patient, uh, he, which he did not, or she did not have at this time, we ended up, uh, the patient cardiology based on the whole history we had given with the patient passing out, they took the patient right to cath actually had clean coronaries, but an EF of about, uh, 35% on the ventricular gram went for a cardiac MRI. Uh, and then there was some scar. So they went for an EP study and had, uh, an like VT ablation done. So this that's one that stands out but I mean that wasn't yeah it's not really it rare. wasn't that crazy no yeah 
What about you, Paul? What's the weirdest one that you've ever admitted? Yeah, nothing wildly satisfying. I mean, I've had, I feel like, two cases of patients who sort of cough themselves in the syncopal episodes, and I don't know if that was sort of an exaggerated vagal response if they were just transiently hypoxic. Um, but that's probably the most, uh, the kind of the weirdest one, um, but also probably the most clean-cut ones. Usually it tends to be a less satisfying diagnosis where it's probably something, but nothing's kind of slam-dunk home run until you find that PE. Right. <laughs> yeah, the PE. Uh, so the weirdest one that I've admitted, so I've, I've admitted a lot of garden variety, there was a period of time over a uh, a two week interval. I admitted three syncope patients, all in their thirties. All three had Takasubo's cardiomyopathy. That was diagnosed. No, no I'm, I, I I kid you not. All three of them were diagnosed with coronary angiography. What what was going on I, in the I, country I at that time? No, I don't know. This was, was this like election related? No, this was, this was 2012. So maybe I don't know. But but all of them had had distinct separate stories about why they were stressed out, and uh, I I don't know it was it was very strange and even the cardiologist I was working with at the at the time was like I've never seen this before. I and we don't have to keep this in the recording, but I actually heard of a patient who had uh, Trump related shingles. <laughs> it was like, the only stress they could find in their life was like this this election has just hit me completely stressed out. I just can't believe this guy's in the office. And and they actually got tearful talking about it. And, and the, the doc that took care of them is convinced it was the election that that triggered their shingles outbreak. So he's got he's got Tringles. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a delicious snack. <laughs> <laughs> kind of like Pringles. <laughs> okay, uh, I'll, uh, I think we should keep that in. But I don't know, Paul. It's up to you. <laughs> I'll leave it up to you. I'm fine with it. All right. Well, uh, I think I've kind of already given the recap on the syncope thing, so I think we can just go right into the outro here. This has been really fun this time. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, mm-hmm. bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. You can find show notes along with links to any articles, books, websites, or apps mentioned on the show at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast. You can also sign up to receive our newsletter, which is coming out at the end of this month, to receive tools, tips, and tricks. That's right, Stuart, alliteration. T3. <laughs> For your practice at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food. And we're committed to providing you with high-value practice-changing knowledge, and we want your input. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes, or send us an email to thecurbsiders at gmail.com. You can recommend a future topic for the show or tell us what you love or hate about the show. And finally, please follow us on our pages on Facebook, Instagram, or on Twitter at The Curbsiders. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Watto. And I'm Dr. Stuart Kent Brigham. And good night. Uh, I'm sorry, we have Instagram? We do, yeah. Fantastic. And this has been Paul Williams. Have a great night. (laughs) 